We're glad to be sharing the ministry of Redemption Church with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. They bring up questions. We don't know what they mean. However horrific we may find some verses in our Bible, some stories in our Bible, they are still in our Bible. Do you follow me on that? Right. It's the word of God. We are told by Jesus that God's word, his words are spirit and they are life. Can you say those two things for me? Spirit and life. His words are spirit and life. As we look into any area of scripture we should study and find the spirit in that passage and the life that's within that passage i believe every passage in the bible is filled with spirit and life i believe that simply because jesus told me that all right is that okay does that make sense i feel like i'm dragging y'all along y'all believe jesus when he says his words are spirit and life all right, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Today's story is likely to bring up questions. If today's story doesn't bring up questions, we need to pray for you because this story will bring up questions, Rick. It will bring up questions. And we have an anonymous text line for just such a thing, 214-856-0550. If you have any questions about something we talk about tonight or you have questions about your Bible, questions about the church, questions about faith, questions about your life, this is a great thing for you. It is our anonymous text line, 214 214- Eight five six zero five five zero. Go ahead and text in your questions today. I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter one thirty seven, for a short story. I am calling "Happy is the One." Can you say "Happy is the One"? Mm-hmm. In our Christian culture, we have grown to love inspirational verses. We've loved them. We love them. It is not unusual to see a piece of artwork with the scripture verse on it, right? Not unusual. Perhaps you have a pretty poster in your home. Have you ever owned a pretty poster with a scripture on it? Yeah. Have you ever owned a, a, a decorative piece in your home that had a scripture verse on it? Maybe a pillow, right? Some wall art. They, have been, they even have daily calendars that, fit, that feature an inspirational Bible verse. Every day for the year, and every day you just pull off one. Anybody have one of those? Anyone ever have one? Real, real quick, someone shout out an inspirational Bible verse. Come on, shout it out. For God so loved the world, right? That's very inspirational. John three sixteen. what? I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. That's Philippians 4.13. Anybody else? Bless when you come in, bless when you go out, right? What? How about Romans 8, 28? All things work together for the good to them that love the Lord according to, according to his words. How about this one? The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. All right, we've got all these wonderful verses in the Bible and they inspire us. So we like to put them on pretty things. We like to hang them on the wall. I wanna tell you today that our Bible verse that we are about to look at 
has never been featured on artwork. Why do we have it up on the screen, buddy? Let's take it off. Our Bible verse today has never been featured on artwork. It has never been made into a t-shirt. It has never been on a bumper sticker. In fact, if I were to pick a passage out of the Bible that would be the most brutal, repulsive, and unsettling scripture, it would be the verse that I'm about to share with you. And now let's look at it. Psalm 137, verse 8 and 9. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what he you have done to us. The next verse is the verse. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rock. Verse 9 is a horrific verse. Would you say yes? Good, good. Perhaps you, you see why no one selects to have this as their life verse. You know, you have, you have people that have selected their life verse, and this is the verse that I want to guide my life. No one should ever select 137 verse 9 of Psalms to be such a, a, a life verse. Uh, you can probably see why Hobby Lobby has never sold a piece of artwork with Psalm 137, verse 9 on it, maybe some blood splatter. Uh, nobody, right? Verse 9 gives us the gruesome picture of someone taking small babies and killing them in one of the most horrific ways you can imagine to kill them, to take them and dash them against rocks. And it says that they do it how? With what emotion? They do it with a happy emotion. So I ask you today, well, how are we supposed to feel about a verse like this? Speaking for myself, when I'm confronted with such things as this, I often find myself in a hurry to move on quickly. Huh, well, that was good. Maybe we could change the subject. Maybe we could talk about God's love very quickly. Maybe I can change your mind and uh, let's talk about a verse that uh, introduces us to the mercy of God, Jesus on the cross, maybe. And it always feels good to do that. But let me tell you, this is the word of God we just looked at. And you're not supposed to run away from the word of God. You're supposed to be confronted by the word of God. So while we're all in feeling this emotion, maybe to turn the page in our Bible to a happier psalm, to a brighter, a more familiar passage, I am also tempted to break the uncomfortable ambiance with the comic deflection. Does anybody get that way when, when it gets awkward? You want to like, maybe I'll, I'll tell a joke. Yep. I I've often even, when confronted with an awful verse like this, uh, felt like, oh man, let's uh, tell a joke. Well, <laughs> it's a good thing we're, you know, something, you know, some, some kind of joke that I can get a hold of. God would have us to really contemplate every scripture in the Bible. He would have us contemplate even the awful gory picture of Psalm 137 verse 9 because it is the word of God and the word of God is filled with spirit and it's filled with life. These are not just the words of someone who has had a bad week and in frustration throws up his fist to the sky with complaints about his boss. No, this is the psalmist. This is the word of God. This is the spirit and life word of God. This is truth 
And we believe it is straight from heaven. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. Not even Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants, innocent little babies who have done nothing wrong and dashes them against the rocks. How does this verse make you feel? This verse should not make you feel wonderful. Should not. It is a gross passage. I have logged many hours holding babies. We've had three boys. I want to tell you, after all these years of logging babies, a confession, I am still very nervous every time I hold a baby. I have never not been nervous holding a baby. It is because I fear I would accidentally drop them. To hold a baby in your hands is to hold hope in your hands, to hold joy in your hands, to hold innocence, to hold uh, possibility in your hands, to hold something so precious in your hands, it's actually humbling to know that babies are a gift from God, and here you are holding one in your hands. That's a humbling experience. Now, from that experience and from that perspective, one of the worst thoughts I conceive, I can conceive, would be to purposely throw a baby towards destruction, to do something that would purposely hold the baby. That would be one of the most evil things I could think of. That would be beyond low down. That would be beyond bad. That would be straight up. What's the word that came to your mind? Evil. That would be my definition of evil. So question, why is this in my Bible? Why is this verse in my Bible, you, you got to get an answer for that. You need to search these things out. We are not called to cut scriptures out of the Bible. We're not called to get a little wide out, you know, and just go over the parts we don't like. We're called to understand it and find a way to properly apply it to our life. Warning, do be very careful in how you apply scripture to your life, including especially this verse, right? Got it. All right, good. We have a lot to learn today. Let's, let's quickly learn the context of Psalm 137. You need to know the context to understand the text. Psalms is a diverse book. It might be the most diverse book in your Bible. Psalms is filled with songs of worship. It's filled with songs of lament, songs of mourning. Psalms is filled with prophecy. Psalms is filled with prayer. Psalms is filled with complaining. Psalms is filled with all kinds of diverse passages. And the Psalms are written by different authors, and we call the authors psalmists. The earliest Psalm is thought to be Psalm 90 and is attributed to a guy we call Moses. Moses, we believe, actually wrote a song, and it appears in Psalm 90. Uh, That's an estimated date of 1489 B.C., around the time of Moses. And now Psalm 137, which we've read the end of, is thought to be one of the youngest psalms written about 539 B.C. That is a span of nearly a thousand years. There is a book in your Bible that is written by many authors over the span of nearly a thousand years. That's pretty amazing to me. We do not know who wrote Psalm 137. Some guess that it could actually be the prophet Jeremiah, but we are not sure who the writer is. 
The psalm was written during the time of exile under the rule of Babylon. What's the exile about? Let's explain that. Israel had been conquered and captured by King Nebuchadnezzar's army, the king of Babylon. And Jerusalem, that beautiful temple of Jerusalem that had been built by King Solomon, it had all been destroyed and torn to the ground. And Jerusalem and its temple now lay in ruin. People were chased from their homeland, and many were captured and forced to live as servants, slavery, in the northern kingdom of Babylon, up to the north. The exile period is where we get stories like Daniel in the lion's den. The three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace. It's where we get prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel during this time. Towards the end of the exiles where we have stories of Nehemiah and Ezra. Psalm 137 is believed to be written in this period of exile in Psalm in, in Babylon. So let's look at the beginning of Psalm 137. Verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on poplars, that's a tree, we hung our harps. Verse 3, for our captors asked us for songs or tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. There was no doubt this psalm is speaking of exile in Babylon. It literally gives us the location, the rivers of Babylon. These verses share a sad moment when the captured Israelites sat down by the river and they wept. Perhaps this was a time where they were leaving Israel and coming back into Babylon and they let them sit by the river to gain some rest for the rest of the journey. And by that riverside, they began to weep. And as they sat and wept, their captors and their tormentors demanded them to sing songs of joy. Why would they do such a thing? As a way of humiliating them. The songs of the Hebrew to this day are still very joyous. If you've ever been around uh, the Jews when they sing, they will sing and they will clap and they will dance. It is a festival. It is a party. And now in this very sad moment, their tormentors are like kicking them and saying, hey, why don't you sing one of those happy songs now? Hey, why don't you feel like dancing now? And they are sitting by the river and they are weeping and they are remembering Zion. At this humiliation, it says that they hung their harps upon the tree. These harps were meant for music. And they hung them on the poplar tree. And it's almost to say, in this time and period, how could we sing? How could we make music? There is no joy left in us because we believe our joy is found being in Jerusalem. The psalm is sharing what actually happened to the exiled Israelites. This is not a metaphor. This is fact. This is an actual thing that happened to the people. Israel had been crushed as we look along. Verse 4 of Psalm 137. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. 
May my tongue cling to the root of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, do not forget and consider. I'll underline those thoughts for you. I want to tell you that all they could do was to cry and to remember. They had nothing left but tears and memories. There was no temple to go to. There was no town center to go to. There was no palace where a king sat under the line of David. There was no longer any hope of a Messiah to come. All of that had been stripped away. There was no place to go and offer sacrifice. There was no place to go and pray. All they could had now was to cry and remember what they used to have. They could not resist their captives, their captors. They could not start over and rebuild a temple in Babylon. They could not bring sacrifice to the house of God. They could no longer have a celebration or a feast. All they could do was sit, cry, and say, someone say the last word, remember. Say remember. Have you ever been in a place where all you could do is cry and remember? Oftentimes when we lose someone, there's not a whole lot we can do. But cry and remember. You remember that stage of life where they were with you. Sometimes as you, uh, as you go into a different stage of life, you remember uh, when children were running through the house. You see those pictures of what they used to look like and how they used to run and how you used to hold them and how you used to go to the park with them. But now that stage of life is gone and all you can do is remember And as you remember, tears begin to form. The promising opportunity that you once just dreamed of and you had so much joy about, now it's come to an end. And now you have to shut that chapter in your life and you look at it and you go, I remember what I used to be so hopeful about and now it is gone. And so now as you remember, you begin to cry. Have you been there? You remember the one you lost and all you can do is cry, the opportunity, the stage of life, the thing that is now gone. This chapter is really about tears and memories. And at this point in the chapter, there is a turn from lamentation to remembering. Verse 7, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. The first word there, they're actually commanding the Lord. Remember, Lord. What the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, the Edomites cried. Tear it down to its foundation. Who are the Edomites? The Edomites were from the lineage of Esau. Esau is literally the brother of Israel, Jacob. And they would always sit uh, and wait. The Edomites would. They would wait for a kingdom to attack Israel from the north. And the Edomites were in the south and they were opportunistic, they would wait for Israel to be busy on the northern frontier in a war, and then they would opportunistically attack and pillage Israel from the south. This was the pattern they would always do. Have you ever had that person in your life that waited for a problem to come, and then they would show up right behind it? You ever had that person? You ever had that person that would wait for you to have the problem in your life, and then they would text you? And then they'd call you. 
The Edomites were that for Israel. And the Edomites happily attacked Israel from the south. On the day that Jerusalem fell to Babylon, the Edomites were there cheering on the Babylonian forces. They happily called out to the Babylonian forces to tear it down to its foundations. These Israelites sitting on the riverside in a strange land remembered and they asked the Lord to do one thing. Remember. Remember, Lord. And then they remembered what Babylon did. They move on from Edom. We remember what they did. Now well, let's remember what Babylon did. Verse 8. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. They remembered what Babylon did to them. Now right here it doesn't give us any specifics on what Babylon did to them. But let me tell you they remembered the specifics. And they declared that someone will one day happily repay Babylon with the exact same treatment. Then they reveal beyond doubt what had been done with what had been done to them by Babylon. Verse 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. The Babylonians had taken the babies of the Israelites and the countless babies of other nations that they had conquered and the Babylonians happily dashed those babies against the rocks. The Israelites, in their tears, in their memory, declared a coming destruction upon Babylon. They specifically declared that Babylon would be repaid in the same way they had delivered destruction to others in the exact same way. I want to tell you the Israelites did not just remember the persecution. They also remembered the promise. Psalm 137 and 8 says, Babylon is doomed to be destroyed. But how could they know this? They're sitting there with armed soldiers around them. They're sitting there with no hope. They're sitting there crying. They're sitting there in humiliation. They're sitting there in doubt. They're sitting there in their tears. How can they know that Babylon is doomed to be destroyed? I want to tell you, at this moment, it had already been prophesied. Before Babylon even captured Israel, the Lord had spoken to a prophet named Jeremiah and given them the prophecy. I want to tell you the prophecy is a promise. That promise would be that Babylon would be destroyed and that the exiled would return to Israel in 70 years from the time of their exile. Jeremiah 29 and 10 says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. This is Jeremiah 29 and 10. Does anybody know the next verse? Because the next verse is that verse that you go to Hobby Lobby and it is on a pillow. The next verse is the one that you have on that nice piece of all artwork And somebody has selected the next verse as their life verse. See, we we do this without knowing the context. 
Here's the context of the next verse. Now let's look at the next verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I want to give you real quick. This life verse that everybody loves is delivered during a time of exile. It is delivered during a time of weeping and crying. And I want to tell you, everybody believes this verse when everything is swell. I want to tell you this verse is correct when it is raining and also when it is shining. This verse is correct when you're in Jerusalem. This verse is correct when you're sitting by the rivers of Babylon. The promises of God are true at all times. And we have that wall art in our life, and sometimes we get up and the birds are chirping, and your wife has already made you coffee, and you're like, oh my gosh, my wife is so wonderful. And your kids come in, they said, oh daddy, blessed daddy, we are so glad to be your prodigy. And you, you come in there, and you, on days like that, you see that Hobby Lobby piece of art, and you're like, yeah, that's right. That's right today. I want to tell you the day where you wake up and you feel miserable, the day you wake up with a migraine, the day you have run out of coffee and the baby's like, uh, I'll kiss you later, I got to go. And the kids are like, ah, that, that day, we call that Monday. <laughs> On that day, that piece of all work, that wall, work, all, wall artwork with Jeremiah 29, 11, I want to tell you, it is still true. It's true not because it's pretty artwork. It's true not because it makes you feel certain feels. It's true because it's the word of God. And the word of God is full of spirit. And the word of God is full of life. So the Israelites, they're sitting and they're crying, but they're also remembering promises of God. And they declare to Babylon, you are doomed for destruction. But really quick, they might have been thinking about other promises of God as well. They were likely remembering this promise that God made Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Even though they are sitting by the rivers of Babylon and they've lost it all. They have not lost this promise and they are remembering it. That is a promise for Israel still today. And this is also a promise of, to all those that are children of Abraham by faith. Is anybody a child of Abraham by faith? I want to tell you that this is your promise as well. That God will bless those that bless you. And whoever curses you will curse. He will curse. And all people on earth are to be blessed through you. When you have nothing left but tears and memories. Your tears and memories are enough. They're enough. When you cry over and remember the promises of God, I want to tell you, that's enough. You have enough. Those that bless you, they're going to be blessed. That's the promise. Those that curse you will be cursed. That's the promise. And people will be blessed through you. That is the promise. So what Psalm 137 and 8 through 9 
does not say. Let's talk about what it does not say. Somebody say, does not say. This verse does not say God desires infanticide. Nowhere does it say that God uh, is for this. God does not endorse these things, right? You have to be careful in your Bible. There are some things that God allows, and there are some things that God endorses. There are some things that God that, that happen on earth that God rubber stamps and says, I'm happy with that. And then there's some things that happen in life that God actually rubber stamps as evil. And you got to know the difference. Just because it happens in your Bible does not mean God endorses it. This verse does not say God is happy about death. It says happy is the one. It doesn't say happy is the Lord. God is not happy in verse 9. This verse is not permission to return evil to those that have done evil to you. That is not what this verse is about. This verse is not a prayer that God will carry out evil acts. God, please do evil things to evil people. If you are praying that way, that is not biblical. No, the Bible says very clearly you're supposed to pray for your enemies. This verse talk about what it's not let's talk about what it is it is a declaration and a remembrance of the promise of God this verse is a reminder that we reap what we sow Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 do not be deceived God cannot be mocked a man reaps what he sows I want to tell you this is an unbreakable supernatural law right here in your Bible it's the supernatural law that if you plant a harvest of death, destruction, and evil, you will reap a harvest of death, destruction, and evil. And if you plant a, a, a harvest of life, blessing, and godliness, what will you reap? You will reap a harvest of life, blessing, and godliness because you reap what you sow. So if you sow wrath, you will reap wrath. Does this make sense? Somebody say amen if it's true. The Babylonians reaped exactly what they had sown. They happily destroyed others, and they were in turn happily to be destroyed. This is what this verse is telling us. If you sow wrath, you reap wrath. The wrath you harvest is the same wrath you planted. Now, this is big. This is where people don't know something. Huh. This is an important concept because we often misunderstand the term, the wrath of God. Who's ever heard the term, the wrath of God? It's in your Bible. It's especially found in the book of Revelation. <laughs> we incorrectly think that the wrath of God is caused by us making God angry. We've made God angry. Perhaps we've not worshipped him enough. You know, we haven't worked. You did not sing that one bridge loud enough. You, did, you didn't quite. Your hand did not go high enough. You didn't turn in your Bible enough this week. You didn't pray enough this week. And now you have angered the God of heaven. And now he is mad at you. So guess what you got? coming your way because you didn't 
you, you failed to make him happy. Now he's going to bring wrath to you. This is an incorrect concept, but it is nonetheless a concept that maybe we have had. Many Christians have had this concept. It's wrong. God, we've not worshipped you enough or kept your rules well enough. Even though we tried, we didn't do them well enough. And now you're angry at us. And now, oh man, God's got the big angry stick coming at us. The thought that we have in some way ticked God off, and that is why wrath has come, is prevalent among people who are learning to follow God. That view is incorrect. Here's what it does wrong. That view makes God a petulant, ill-tempered, somewhat self-centered child. That's the picture that that creates. Well, if you're not going to do what I want, I am just going to strike you with a lightning bolt. That is, that is childless. That is not the picture of God that we have in our Bible. What's the picture we have of God in our Bible? The self-sacrificial, loving lamb. Now, that's the picture of God in our Bible. That's the picture that we know to be true. I would argue that the view of wrath where you've made God mad is not the Christian view. It's more like the Greek and Roman pantheon of false gods where, they, where humanity had to keep all of the gods happy or else they would lose their crops. We got to go sacrifice to Hermes or, you know, he's not going to be on good terms with Zeus. And if we're not on good terms with Zeus, kids, we're going to have trouble. We got to keep all these gods happy. And there's all these gods to keep happy. And so they constantly live their life trying to make gods happy. Have you ever tried to make someone happy? It's exhausting. I'm not able to make me happy. I fail at making me happy. How am I going to make God happy? That's hard. That's difficult. I'm definitely not able to make my children happy most of the time. They have told me so. What chance? As much as I love my kids, if I'm not able to make them happy, how am I going to make a deity happy? I don't have enough to make him happy. What if I were to tell you that God's wrath did not originate with him? I think this is big. I want you to get it. When we talk about the wrath of God, it didn't start with him. It did not originate with him. Think on that verse as I turn to a great verse to help you see it. Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. Who is? You are, I am. Not God is, right? It doesn't say God yet, right? God is storing up wrath. No, no. You are, sweetheart, <laughs> storing up wrath. Continuing. Against who? yourself for the day of God's wrath. Now it talks about God's wrath, but whose wrath was it? It was yours. Who stored it up? You did, but you stored it up against who? Yourself, and you stored it up for what? The day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Where did 
the wrath originate? This is big. This is big. I'm going to help somebody tonight because God is a God of love. What originates with him is love, not wrath. Did that feel right? It's the truth. What originates with him is truth. What originates with him is forgiveness. Wrath doesn't originate with him. It originates with us. Wrath originated with lies in the garden. Wrath originated with a man named Cain killing his brother. Wrath originated with evil being done on the earth so much that that water had to flood it. Wrath originates with the things I say and the things I think and the things I do. And I, it starts with me and I store it up for a day of God's wrath. Stubborn, unrepentant, evil becomes stored up wrath. This wrath is stored up for the day of God's wrath. What do you think stored up wrath looks like? What do you think the day of God's wrath looks like? Well, one definite place that this comes into play, it might not be the only place it comes into play, but definitely this coincides with a very specific place in your Bible. Revelation chapters 15 and 16. It describes seven bowls. Somebody say seven bowls. That are filled, they are stored up with wrath. I believe it's the same wrath of Romans chapter 2 verse 5. I believe it's all of the world's wrath stored in these seven bowls. The wrath that was planted by multitudes of earth's people is harvested and stored in these bowls. And in chapter 16 of Revelation, God pours out some of the stored wrath upon the earth. He stores them out. He pours them out bowl by bowl. He doesn't pour them out all at once, just bam, all seven bowls. No, he sends an angel and one bowl at a time is poured out upon the earth. Someone say amen if you know I'm right. Good, I want to be telling the truth. And it says in the chapter multiple times this phrase shows up in your Bible, verse 9 and verse 11. It says that they refused to repent. Somebody say refused to repent. Remember what, how uh, Romans 2 and 5 starts? Stubborn, unrepentant, stores up wrath. And here is wrath being poured out and one by one. They refused to repent. Let's get some understanding. We read Romans 2.5, so let's back up one verse. Get some understanding. Verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to blessing? Somebody correct the pastor. No, no. God's kindness is intended to lead you to Lots of money. God's kindness, and in, it, 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 it's supposed to lead you to a brand new car and a brand new house and a new suit. No, God's kindness, don't listen to those televangelists on television that tell you if you, if you, you know, God's kind that, that's leading you to blessing. No, God's kindness is supposed to lead you to somebody help me. Repentance, that's where you pray and you say, I'm a sinner, God, forgive me. 
What leads us to that? Somebody tell me. It is God's kindness. Notice that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance. But what happens when we refuse to repent? If you refuse to repent, does God just keep giving you kindness? What what do you think? No, the next verse tells us, but you, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. When you refuse to repent, when you receive God's kindness and you go, I refuse to repent. You are not storing up kindness. You are storing up wrath. If you sow wrath, you reap wrath. And this is at the heart of this horrific verse in Psalm 137. Brought all that to you. That's the foundation. That's the lens by which I want you to see this verse in 137, verse 9 of Psalms. Babylon had walked past the goodness of God. I'm going to tell you, there is not a person on earth that has not experienced the goodness of God. Even a person that is strapped to a wheelchair, if they are honest, they would tell you that there is a good God in the universe. Everybody, they woke up to a good God who gave us a good sun and a good planet and good air to breathe and good water to drink. God's goodness is all around us. And Babylon itself had walked past God's goodness and God's kindness. And remember, it's his kindness and goodness that leads us to repentance. Y'all are on it. Good job tonight. Now, Babylon had experienced that kindness, but had they repented? Babylon did not repent. They had done evil. They had crushed and broken nations. They had captured and enslaved many people. They had taken babies and happily destroyed them in the most gruesome way, dashing them on the rocks. All the while, they are walking past his kindness and they are refusing to repent and they are storing up somebody, help me, wrath. Y'all get it. Psalm 137, verse 8 and 9. You know what it's about? It is a declaration and a prophecy that the wrath they have stored up will one day be poured out upon them. Non-Christians might call this karma. Y'all have heard people talk about karma? You do something, it always comes back at you. It's karma. But karma is like some kind of cosmic justice kind of thinking. If you sense things out in that, in the universe, you know they have a way of coming back to you. That's what people that believe in karma kind of say. I want to tell you the wrath that is poured out is not cosmic justice. Stick with me. But it is God giving people yet another opportunity to repent. Somebody said it. Somebody's preaching to me. I love it. God's wrath is giving people an opportunity one more time to yet repent. Do you see it? I want to tell you that only a God of love Only a God who describes himself like this. God is love. Only that God could store up wrath, this awful thing, the worst kind of things. Killing, raping, the sex trade, evil of every sort, hurting innocent children. Only God could take that yuck, gross, 
evil wrath and turn it into mercy. But that's what God does with stored up wrath. I'll, I'll stick with me. God stores up wrath, then he pours out wrath, and he does it in a merciful and loving way, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, one bowl, two bowls, a little bit at a time. This is at the end of the age, bowl number four. They still haven't repented. Here is the next bowl, Day f- bowl five. Here is the fifth bowl. And what is he doing? He is waiting for the inhabitants of the earth to repent. What about if they feel this wrath? Now remember, this is called God's wrath, but it originated with us. It's a way of saying, do you see what you're doing? This is a taste of what you're putting out. This is a taste of the hatred that you're putting out on the world. This is the taste of the destruction that you're doing to others. And he's pouring the wrath that we have originated in us. He's pouring it out back on us, not just as a way of destroying us. No, if God wanted to destroy us, we'd be dead already. He poured all out at once. He does it a little bit at a time because he's given you one more chance to repent. Oh, God, you're a loving God. If we will only repent, If we will only repent, had Babylon repented, God would have forgiven them. We have it in Scripture. If if they would have repented, God would have forgiven them. And I believe God would have even blessed them. In the story of Jonah, the evil city of Nineveh, uh, somewhere a, a Sunday school teacher just smiled. Oh, they did listen. Nineveh was doomed to receive wrath, like like end of days revelation wrath. One of those big old bowls of wrath was going to be poured out on Nineveh. But the city of Nineveh did what? They repented. They repented, and God withheld the wrath. I want you to get this, that God, even if he says, I'm going to pour out wrath, but you repent, He will withhold what he said. He would pour out. Do you see that? Is repentance powerful? Is repentance wonderful? Is repentance something that we need in our life? Nineveh was an Assyrian city. Everybody say Assyrian. And it would later become a Babylonian city. It's literally inside where Babylon would be. Do we understand How powerful repentance is. Repentance can stop the the wrath of God from being poured out. Repentance can stop the gates of hell from overcoming you. Repentance can make you a citizen of heaven. Repentance causes the angels in heaven to stand to their feet and applause. Repentance moves the very heart of a loving God. Repentance is powerful. Repentance is powerful. I want to tell you something. We don't even understand how powerful it is. We don't even understand how wonderful it is. Repentance goes beyond our understanding. Is anybody thankful for God who allow us to repent? Can you just take one moment and tell him, thank you, Lord, for the ability to repent, for the ability to ask you to forgive me. We're going to pray soon. 
I would love to pray a prayer of repentance with anyone tonight. You have never repented before. This is your night. Anyone online, if you've never prayed a prayer of repentance, please talk to us. We want to pray a prayer of repentance. It can change your life tonight. We believe it. We know it. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. Tonight's your night. When I open up this altar for a time of prayer, I want you to come right up here. Find me. I will pray with you a prayer of repentance. And I know that when you pray it, God will forgive you. Anybody else know it? You know it? Raise a sign of hands. Look around in this place. God will do it. God does it. And you might be saying, oh, yeah, easy for you to say you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the evil I've done. You don't know the things I've said. You don't know about the secret evil things about me. I'm going to tell you, you don't know the secret evil things about me. And I would tell you there are bigger sins than the ones you got that are already beneath the blood of Jesus, never to be seen again. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, God, for it all. When you have nothing left but tears and memories. Maybe I'm speaking to someone who's got nothing left but exactly that. I want to tell you, go ahead and cry those tears. Sometimes you just need to cry. And then you go ahead and you remember. But make sure you remember the promises of God. You can remember the heartache. You can remember the disappointment. But make sure you remember the promises of God. Because every promise of God is true. I taught you about the supernatural law of reaping and sowing. But what happens when you sow tears? If you sow tears, do you reap more tears? That would make sense. In that supernatural law, you reap what you sow. So if you reap, if you sow tears, you're just going to reap more tears. Doesn't that make sense? I want to tell you something. God does something amazing. It's like, I don't want to say God breaks the law here. I don't want to say, but it's like he does something. He like flips a switch somewhere supernaturally. I'll just let the scripture speak for itself. Psalm 126, a chapter about God's promise of restoring his people. We find this verse, verse 5, Psalm 126. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. I want to tell you, God has a way in his grace and in his love, and in his kindness, to, for us to sow things that are absolutely useless, and then turn around and turn them into joy, turn them into beauty. I would also tell you this, that only in God could you sow wrath and not receive that wrath. I want to tell you a story about a pastor friend I've got named Don. Intro, two, three, one, two, three. Don grew up on a pew. Grew up going to church every Sunday. But Don kind of got away from God. He heard the message, but he didn't live the message. He believed the message was true, but he certainly didn't walk in it. And he found himself around the wrong people. Don started 
stealing cars. Don had this weird itch that he would see a nice car, and you and I would say, wow, that's a nice car. And by his own words, he said, there was something in me. I saw a car. Everybody else said, wow, that's a nice car. I made plans to come back and steal that car. This was a kid who grew up on the pew. He grew up singing the same songs you do. And he came back and he stole cars. And he was around drug addicts. And he did drugs. And he peddled a little bit of that too. It was his enterprise. And then he got arrested. And his life was over. He knew his life was over. What had he done? He had sown wrath. And now it was about to all come down on him. Paid his bail. He left the doors of that prison, that that police station, and he ran to a church. And he sat on that pew and he was like, when is this pastor going to stop preaching? He was just there waiting. The guy was preaching way too long. He was already ready to come. And he ran to an altar. And Don brought his tears to an altar. And he cried out, God, forgive me. I should have known better. God, forgive me. I have stolen things that don't belong to me. God, forgive me. I am worthless. I am a sinner. God, I've done the wrong things. I've said the wrong things. I've thought the wrong things. God, now my life is over. Please, God, forgive me. And he cried in that that altar. Not pretty cries. You know, like the, the, the actors on TV. Actors on TV learn how to cry really pretty. It's like little glisten. It's like, Oh, it's rolling down and the light's just right and it glistens. No, this is full on ugly cry. My life is over. All I can do is sit and cry and remember what a pastor told me a long time ago. That God will forgive me if I repent. God heard God. Don brought his tears, he brought his memories, and he found grace instead of wrath in that altar. And he found freedom instead of imprisonment in that altar. You might not believe me, but I ain't lying to you. He received a call that very week of a policeman that was angry said, Don, I don't know what to tell you, but we lost all of the evidence. You sorry sucker, if I catch you on the streets again, I, you will not be so lucky next time. And Don's like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You will not catch me on those streets again. What happened? What happened? I'm telling you, with a God that we serve, you can bring him your wrath. Don had wrath coming his direction, but he brought it to the altar, and he brought his tears to an altar, and he, what did he receive? He received his life back. He received joy. He received freedom. He received it all 
Because God is kind and God is wonderful. He is kind to even those that don't deserve his kindness. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about people like me. And I'm talking about people like you. None of us deserve his kindness. We've not earned his kindness. He freely gives his kindness. We don't deserve his son on a cross. He kindly gives his son to us on a cross. I'm telling you, you and me, we have wrath coming our way because we are sinners. All of humanity has wrath coming our way. But what does God do? God sends his son into the world. Do you know what Jesus Christ did on that cross? He took the wrath that was meant for you upon himself. For you to bear the wrath that's coming at you was never God's will. It was God's will for he himself to bear the wrath and for you to repent and find forgiveness. That what is what the cross is for. That's what the Bible is for. That is what the spirit and life of God's word says to you tonight. And I pray that you feel that spirit and life because it's in the room right now. Do you have wrath coming your way? Come to this altar. For more information about redemption, look us up online at redemption-church.com. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or even our anonymous question text line at 214-856-0550. Thank you for joining us, and have a blessed day.